Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV show. But it is. But it is. It It is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, as always, I am your co-host, Josh Miller. And also, as always, with me is my co-host, Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Hanging in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's all we can hope. Um, again, I imagine anyone who listens to podcasts is used to this by now, but always worth Reminding everyone that we are not recording in our usual studio. We are recording this over Zoom in our homes. So apologies for uh, inferior sound quality compared to what we usually do. Um, But we're excited because we have a fun and kind of unique to us at least episode today. We're joined by our guest author, J.W. Rinsler. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing you know, fairly well, but and uh, but so I appreciate this uh, distraction and able to talk about fun <laughs> for a couple hours. I hope. Yeah, well, let's let's start off talking a little bit about you. Uh, I, if if people know who you are, probably from you have kind of this pretty cool career with these well-known, or at least well-known to me. Um, making of books like the making of Star Wars, complete making of Indiana Jones. Um, and you, I know you have a brand new book out right now that is not a making of. Do you want to maybe talk about that for a second? Uh, sure, yeah. I have my first, it's a historical fiction thriller called All Up. It's kind of a one-stop uh, summer read about the first space age. You know, it's designed to be a page turner, but also dramatizing known facts about the first space age, you know, the V2 and Werner von Braun and that fun group of guys <laughs> who were eventually brought over to the U.S. and uh, Operation Paperclip and up to Apollo 11. But it also has things that aren't, you aren't going to find in conventional stories that, because, you know, they haven't really been accepted historically, such as, you know, the flying disc or flying saucers, as they used to call them. And, uh, retro or reverse engineering, which you know is talked about in relationship to those guys and, uh, and Freemasonry and, and other weird things that are, are not part of the typical story, but are in, in all up. So it's kind of just a it was a passion project for me. It took about seven years research and writing. So I'm excited that it's out. That's cool. Nice. Um, and as getting a little further into you and your background. Uh, Maybe just kind of give us, obviously, the quick version, but just kind of how you got into your line of work. 
Uh, well, you know, I grew up like most people who are somehow involved in film today, loving movies, you know, monster movies, famous monsters, magazine and so on. And, and Errol Flynn and uh, Robin Hood and those things. And then, as I, and then I got older, I, I started reading up on it and vaguely had an idea that I'd like to write books about behind the scenes, you know, because of things like the Jaws log. Uh, Great and book. Then, Without going into too much detail, I ended up working at Lucasfilm in 2001 and being the nonfiction editor, and uh, which was kind of a fluke. And but as a result of being the nonfiction editor, I was working on the behind-the-scenes book and books. There were many of them, and lots of other books. And so I ended up uh, following George Lucas around for three years, chronicling the making of what was then the last Star Wars movie, uh, Revenge of the Sith. And so I got to know him, and that led to writing a lot of other Star Wars, <laughs> making up there and, and working on his projects. He had book projects, um, and uh, I could rock out the greatest books that were never made, or the best <laughs> books that were never made. Uh, most of them were made, but a few weren't. And uh, it was just an amazing. I was there for 15 years, and and uh, oh, wow. And, and uh, well, and I mean, long story short, that's in part why we thought it'd be great to have you on as kind of this prolonged insight into that whole Lucasfilm world. And uh, I mean, you know, you could almost do months worth of episodes just on the different unmade Indiana Jones movies. Um, and we last year did an episode that one we really like on the initial Star Wars, the Lee Brackett script that then became Empire Strikes Back. And it's kind of, these movies are so well known now, the Star Wars movies, I mean, ingrained in pop culture that it's just fascinating to think that there was like a whole draft where Darth Vader wasn't Luke's dad because that just feels like the kind of thing that was planned from the get-go. And But, you know, it's just not how movies happen typically. Yeah, and and... You know, each movie has its own interesting and sometimes bizarre backstory. And George Lucas movies have are particular in that they have that sort of idiosyncratic George Lucas backstory, which, which is more like a, a kaleidoscope. Because if you ask George Lucas uh, today, if, if Darth Vader was always Luke's father, he'll probably 99% sure he would say yes. <laughs> and he would be justified because in the rough draft, main character was Anakin Starkiller and his father was Kane Starkiller and he was a Jedi, Jedi Bendu, but in fact he was half man, half machine. So in the very earliest draft, that was true, except that he wasn't Darth Vader, he was this other guy. And then things, you know, changed around so many times yeah. that, that it no longer was true, really, but maybe it was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There is that gray area where he would be justified in saying that it was true, whereas, frankly, I think when he was making the movie, it wasn't true. Darth Vader was the bad guy, and they were not at all related, familial. Um, well, there's so much stuff we could talk about. I'm trying to even think. I wonder maybe a logical place to begin, since we had an episode about Empire Strikes Back, maybe talking about Return of the Jedi and kind of the sure. original versions of that. Well, yeah, Return of the Jedi, it was really interesting um, reading the early sort of outlines and, and pages and notes and then the, the script. I, I actually, there were things I li really liked about that rough draft that George Lucas wrote before Larry Kasdan was involved. In, in some ways, it's better than the final film and that it has a much more exciting battle, uh, Princess Leia, the whole act one in some ways is devoted to Princess Leia. She's alone on, on the sort of Ewok planet and she's spearheading this sort of rebel invasion of the, of the planet because they need to get, they need to grab control of two big guns and one of the big guns is gonna knock out communication to the Death Star and the other big gun is gonna do something to the city planet which is below. There's this, the whole city planet of Coruscant is, is in the first draft. And it doesn't make it to the final movie at all, but the Emperor is originally in some sort of lava lair beneath the city planet, 
uh, and it's not called Coruscant, it's called Had Abaddon. And uh, it's just, there's a lot of, uh, it was, I think it was his Blue Sky version. I don't, I think he did the same thing for the rough draft of Star Wars. He didn't do that for Empire, but he did for Star Wars and Jedi. And I think he was just, if he had a million, you know, all the money in the world, this is what he would do. And I, I don't think he ever intended to, the rough draft of Jedi to be filmed, but it was, it's very interesting in lot, lots of different ways. Was there still the Jabba's palace section, like after this initial Leia thing? Did she then go to rescue yeah, Han? Yeah, there was. Well, no, she was. She wasn't involved. She had, there was no slave outfit. She stays on that planet through the whole movie, and Luke begins uh, outside of the somewhere on Tatooine, and, and sort of is plotting with the droids on how to rescue Han. But in the early version, Han has already been unfrozen. You don't see him being un, unfrozen on screen. You just oh, kind of hear he's unfrozen. <laughs> you're going to kill him, and now you have to go rescue him. So there's more of a time lock. Too, that they're planning on killing him so he's got to go rescue him and then there's more banter between him and Han Solo which I kind of like which is lost in the, in the final film and, and, in, and in a way you can kind of see how you know Leia gets kind of shoehorned into the final version of the film because they never actually say anything to her when they <laughs> see her <laughs> she's a prisoner she's half naked and she's chained to this giant slug and they shot, they actually, when they actually shot that scene, you know, it was cut and Carrie Fisher said, hi guys. You <laughs> <laughs> realize there's kind of some dialogue missing because there's no recognition on their part at all that, hey, there's this person who you know really well. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. And it's because she kind of got shoehorned from this other part of the story back into this part of the story they're now filming and without it actually they didn't quite visualize what was happening and and on set Richard Marquand wasn't I guess didn't have enough latitude or didn't really care or whatever that there was this meeting taking place with no acknowledgement that a meeting was taking place <laughs> and did it did it end similarly with Luke and Vader and the Emperor up on the Death Star and all that no, no, the whole battle takes place in this lava layer. Oh, right. The sea. And, uh, and it's, very, it's, it's very interesting. It's kind of like a four-way battle in that um, Darth Vader is very much more at odds with uh, the Emperor. Uh, that's another reason why I really like the rough draft is that at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader is like ruling the universe. The Emperor is kind of an afterthought. It's like, join me, we're going to we're going to bring down the emperor and the rough draft is much more like that there. The emperor and Darth Vader are at each other's throats. They're plotting against each other. Whereas by the time in the original film, it starts something. It's like something's happened off screen and Darth Vader is this sort of, uh, domesticated Sith. <laughs> yeah. Ultimate <laughs> believer type. It's true. To the emperor, it's just like, yeah, something I can do. I gave up. Good luck. Whereas in the, in the rough draft, he's much more, um, trying to convert Luke still. And so the final battle is, is a battle of wits to some extent between the Emperor, Vader, and Luke. And finally, when the Emperor realizes that Vader isn't going to kill Luke and Luke isn't going to kill Vader, the Emperor starts unleashing his lightning. Uh, Obi-Wan and Yoda show up. Whoops. Sorry about that. Obi-Wan and Yoda show up and uh, act as shields to Luke. For the lightning. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and actually, first Obi Wan shows up, and the Emperor's like, "Yeah, I can deal with you. You're kind of a lightweight." And then Yoda shows up, and the Emperor's like, "Holy shit! <laughs> I might be in trouble." <laughs> wow, Emperor versus Yoda—that's something I'd like to see. Well, we did find in what if it Revenge of the Sith. Oh but, yeah. Uh, but this was—I don't—and I. Don't, and I and also in the end, at the very end, when they, they do have the big dance, you know, with the Ewoks, uh, Obi-Wan comes back in the flesh. He says, my work in the, whatever the force area is done, I'm coming back in the flesh and your father, his father comes back with him. Luke hugs his father, who's, you know, saved huh. his soul or whatever. 
It's, it's very, very different. It's very wild. Well, and in this rough draft, because I always know growing up, learning uh, to what extent it ever was true that the Ewok planet was originally going to be a Wookiee planet. Was that well, from that, was, that, or was that a later? No that's, no, that's the rough draft. In the original rough draft, which incidentally I, I, I adapted into a comic book called The Star Wars, because it's based on the rough draft. I still had the, oh, yeah. The By the way, I love, it's one of my favorite things. Really? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with those early drafts of Star Wars. Like, I have, yeah, I, it's a whole other story for another time. I'm obsessed with them. Because, <laughs> well, like, Mace Windu's introduced in the first, I have, uh, yeah, those the early treatments to the synopsis till he, till he gets into the screenplays. And I thought you did a phenomenal job. Like, it was, like, mind-bending, the amount of work I couldn't imagine it was to put that thing together. So, but, yeah, phenomenal job with that. I love it. How do you like it? Yeah, the Journal of the Wills, with mm-hmm. the Mace Windy or whatever it is. I, I, yeah. I'm getting lazy on it. But yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, it, it was mind-bending to keep track of it all. And uh, yeah, and in the original rough draft, yeah, it's the, uh, it's the Wookiee planet, and there, there are no Ewoks. And the Wookiees, mm-hmm. the, the uh, Anakin Starkiller tra- and, and his colleagues train the Wookiees to fly starfighters and attack the... Uh, the Death Star, and it's great. It's really fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it, I think people always get it confused because I think the Ewoks were always intended to be in Return of the Jedi or, Jedi or Revenge of the Jedi, but they were just, they were they looked differently. They were, you know, uh, they had like, uh, they were short. I mean, they are still short, but they had like yellow eyes. They were creatures with big ears or something. But yeah, the, the, the Wookiee thing was from, like you're saying, the original Star Wars draft. And I guess just rumors. Because back then there wasn't internet and all this stuff. So we'd read stuff in like Cinefantastic or Starlog and then we'd explain it to someone and then it'd get explained again to someone. Yeah, the telephone game. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I, didn't, I did not know that. And then for Return of the Jedi, what I also find interesting in the original draft is there is two Death Stars mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, there's two Death Stars and the city, you know, the city's planet beneath. Yeah, it would have been really spectacular. And, uh, and also when Leia is on the, in the beginning of the Act One, there's not only the Ewoks, but there's another alien species called the, the Yusum, or the Yusum, who are tall. They have really tall, spindly legs. And the Ewoks are short, so they would have been this great, you know, contrast. And Leia is dealing with both of them, and she's the one who spearheads, you know, getting the Ewoks on their on the side of the rebels. And she's the one who's in the rocket. They call them rocket bikes. What became the speeder bikes? Yeah. She's Luke isn't involved. It's just her, and so that's all very interesting. But it would have been really cool with two Death Stars. I agree. Oh, and I, there's also this other cool concept in it too is that when Luke defeats Vader, Vader falls into the lava and it's almost like a flashback for him from the Obi-Wan fight and Luke saves him from the lava, which I kind of, something about that I really dug, you know, that concept as, as yeah. well. But, but people don't realize like, you know, Kasdan came in and kind of helped with Empire and then same with this one. I guess that's why... He's. Am I wrong that he's the one that took out both Death Star, both Death Stars, and then took out the city planet, and then just figured, why don't you just make it all take place here because we're running out of time and you got to shoot soon? Was, was that the case? Do you know? It was. It wasn't. He was in the story conference. They had this big story conference, which is which is in the book, and uh, we have the whole thing. And what is basically George actually saying. I, you know, I can't do this city planet. It's going to be really expensive. It's going to take up the whole, they only had, you know, the one soundstage at ILM. So it's going to tie up the soundstage for the whole shoot, which is going to be problematic logistically. And he also, he did keep, he actually, Kazan was arguing to keep it. And George was saying, but if, even if we keep it, how am I going to explain that you can destroy this whole planet? I can't, the rebels can't destroy a whole planet. And, and it was Kazan saying, well, you don't have to destroy the whole planet or whatever. You can just have a power station on the, on the city planet and have the rebels sort of pinpoint that 
and all the lights go out, and so they've kind of won. Uh, but it was George who, who nixed it, and it, and it was George somewhere in the conference. I think during the story conference, they decide to put the emperor on the Death Star, and that's sort of that's the thing that changes everything and and makes the story become what it is. It kind of that way you can blow up the Death Star and kill the emperor all at the same time, even though he's already dead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, um, and I think also what happened. One of the things you got to remember. The optic of seeing Return of the Jedi is that George was really, really disappointed with Star Wars. I'm sure you guys have heard that. He was not happy with the way Star Wars turned out. It was very disappointing in two very important ways to him. He didn't get the cantina scene that he wanted, and he didn't get the attack on the Death Star he wanted. And so in doing Return of the Jedi, at a certain point, he thought, now I've got the money and I've got the control and I'm going to redo those scenes. And so Jabba, the, Jabba's palace is like a, it's almost like a, a redo of the cantina scene with as many aliens and creatures as he wants. And, uh, and the Death Star attack, which would have been in the other version as well, but he, but it was simplified. He can concentrate all of his, all of his, you know, uh, material and whatever and personnel on that giant aerial attack and it is pretty cool i mean ilm did a amazing in my opinion just a fantastic job i think they took what was a kind of a, a b film and made it into a i don't know an a minus film with that with those visual effects i mean mm -hmm. i remember at the time it was just mind-blowing you know when the, when the millennium falcon flies into the death star and the you've got 150 tie fighters coming at you i mean it was it was just a unbelievable you know it was like and it really was much much more than the original attack on the death star as great as that is return of the jedi was more you know visually striking in, in some ways you know, the amount of spacecraft during that battle it, it was amazing as a you know I, I saw it at the right age and it was just mind-blowing at how much was coming at me in that theater and uh, yeah, compared to the first one, I never realized that he was just trying to one it up. It makes total sense now. The Cantina with Jabba, and that 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 ending battle sequence. Yeah, yeah because remember in the in the first one, Stuart Freeborn got sick. They moved it up in the schedule. They only had you know whatever seven or eight aliens ready when they shot it at Elstree, and then they did pickups, but they didn't have enough money. Unfortunately, Rick Baker uh, came to the rescue with dozens of masks and stuff. But it was really kind of a hodgepodge thrown together and fixed in the editing room. But I think it was very frustrating for, for George, whereas, you know, the Jabba's palace, he got to do it the way he wanted to. Right on. And, then he and then he still redid it. <laughs> he still had it. <laughs> yeah. Which, Never good enough. <laughs> yeah, but I heard like, well, was it in the Secret History of Star Wars book? Like he actually, I think there was like a story in there, and I don't know if it's true, that he called Mark Hamill like the night of the premiere saying he, he needs him to dub lines. He's changing lines of the movie, you know, like he was constantly tinkering with it all the way from the moment it was done, the first Star Wars. So if that's for, correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know exactly the story, but, you know, it's, it's, has the ring of truth. I mean, George was always tinkering. On, on, on episode three, Revenge of the Sith, I was there when George decided that he wanted this shot of uh, Anakin's mechanical hand taking Padme's flesh hand uh, at, when they get married. That shot wasn't in there. And, and the movie was, it was literally the day before the movie was coming out. Oh, wow. And I was, I was in Rick McCallum's office, producer, and uh, and there was a guy there who was like, "I we can't do it." And he said, "Look, you want me, Rick? You want me to tell George you can't do it?" <laughs> and he said, "We can't do it for the celluloid version, but we can do it for the digital release because that's you know it's digital. We can we can send them that one thing, and they can they can still make that change." And they and that guy went running out of the office. <laughs> there was some high pressure stuff going on they got that in for the digital release but not these not the film release 
Oh, yeah, that's typical George. He was always changing things, always. And you know, and we'll keep changing them as long as he's able to. <laughs> well, and a very broad question, obviously, but like going into the prequels, I mean, I can only imagine how much those were always changing from his original roughs and treatments into what we saw. Yeah, well, that was that was uh, the prequel, and I was I was there for episode two at ILM for the dailies. Trying to think if there were any last minute changes for that one. I'm sure there were, but I can't. I don't know what they might. I don't recall. Um, but I know, you know, for the Clone Wars cartoons, you know, things were always happening in editorial. You know, I mean, you guys know. I'm sure most movie makers will say a movie gets made three times. Mm-hmm. One when you write it, one second time when you film it, and third time in editorial. For sure. Um, so, so you were there from the beginning then of episode three. Yeah, I came in during post-production on episode two, and I was there from the first, I was actually there physically at the, in the first art department meeting for episode three with, uh, Ryan Church and Eric Keenan's and uh, George. Um, yeah, up up to you know the very end, it was it was an amazing experience. Oh wow, that's that's like my third or second favorite Star Wars film. I always I I love that movie so much. I think it's really underappreciated. I I think so. You know, I really can't see that one without. I just I can I can just see what's happening in my mind's eye right off the camera. <laughs> I know. I just I can't see it without. It's still too soon. Maybe in ten years I'll be able to see it and not think of all that stuff. I can't see it objectively. But um, oh yeah, a quick question with that one is: is it true like the the early versions of it um, had like a young Han Solo in it and a like uh, Boba Fett character and Boba Fett was in it? I don't know about Boba Fett. But definitely Han Solo. It wasn't in the movie, but in the concept pre-production, there was going to be maybe uh, young Han Solo. I don't even know if, if he was in the script. There was definitely concept art of him mm. that was done. I don't remember Boba Fett. It's Boba Fett. It's possible. Um, and you know, one thing is that uh, you know Spielberg was involved uh, in some of the animatics of uh, episode three and, and, and talk about best movies that were never made. He had, he planned quite a bit of stuff, but I, I really don't know the story behind that. All of, even though I was there and I, I was talking to Dan Gregoire, who was the head of animatics, but uh, who was going out down to Spielberg's place. But, um, you know, there, he was, but there, but there was a lot planned and, and not much made it into the final version of the film. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, Steve, were you about to ask something? Oh, no, but yeah, no, yeah, because the other thing I heard, I mean, I didn't hear, I read it in um, Secret History of Star Wars. If you don't remember, it's fine, but the opening was totally different as well. It was supposed to be, like you're saying, I guess it was supposed to be more epic, like seven battles on seven planets or something like that. Well, you know, it's just, it wasn't that it was supposed to be, it was just in the ideas were played, toyed with, kind of just like Jedi, there's, and, and that what happened was, yeah, the original concept, the first thing that George told Ryan Church was there's going to be seven battles on seven planets. And, uh, and there was all kinds of concept art on those seven planets done. Um, they were pinned every Friday. They would be, they'd pin it up on these styrofoam boards. And uh, it was like an art gallery opening every Friday. Um, and George would come and he'd go through and he'd approve stuff and say change stuff and disapprove other things. But what happened with that is it was changed. Most of that stuff, most of those planets that were chosen were changed to the middle of the film when the Jedi are being wiped out during Order 66. So you can still see those planets, but they were moved from the front of the film to the Order 66 part when they're being wiped out. There's like Seleucami, which is kind of that weird upside down bridge planet. And there's Felucia, which is kind of the weird plant uh, where uh, Ayla Secura, I think, is killed. I can't keep track of it. I don't remember at all. But <laughs> a lot of those ideas were um, moved up. Basically, they moved back in the story, I guess you could say. 
Oh, but that's, that's the way he worked, you know. Oh, wow, what a trip. No, I always remembered hearing that. Because like I said, it's like one of my favorite Star Wars films. I always wondered what that would have been like. And now when I watch it again during that sequence, um, that's where they all are now. That, what a trip. Yeah, yeah they were just, just kind of moved. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Uh, there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, that's just the way he works. Is he, he whittles stuff down. Originally when Obi-Wan falls into the, He's knocked off the whatever creature it is, the boga on Utapau, and he falls into the, the sinkhole, into the water. There was going to be a whole thing where he came out and went into a cave, and there was a creature in the cave, and I forget what happened there, but he kind of makes friends with the creature in the cave. And then, oh, yeah, and then there were, <laughs> there were bad guys following him, and I think the creature in the cave eats it. <laughs> you know? Right on. So there's there was all kinds of stuff and and of course they they filmed the whole Padme kind of forming up what becomes the Rebel Alliance and but then they cut those things out because Francis Ford Coppola said you got to just have Anakin just Anakin is your through line don't you don't need all this other stuff and it can't be three hours long so the stuff has to go. No, there's so many set pieces in that film. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I don't know. I love. I mean, I could gush about it. I know so many people hate on me for liking it, but it's like it's filled with set pieces, like um, the Grievous fight in the beginning to Obi Wan's whole little side quest he does when he goes up against Grievous, and I mean, oh no, the opening when he goes up against um, Christopher Lee's character. I'm losing. Dooku, yeah, there's the Dooku <laughs> sequence in the opening and then the Grievous uh, side quest with Obi-Wan. Like, there's so many set pieces. It's, uh, I don't know, I, I love that film. Well, um, I, you know, I, I love all the, those beautiful establishing shots, you know, and, uh, and, and, and the thing about that, too, just, just in its defense, too, because people think, oh, it's just a bunch of blue screen. It's really not true. I mean, George was pushing digital for all it was worth, and uh, he had no problem using blue screen if it made the most sense. But there were a lot of sets built for that film, like like Grievous's starship bridge. That was unbelievably cool to be on that set. You know, I, I'd get there early and go sit in Grievous's command chair. You know, I should have taken a picture of myself, but I was too terrified <laughs> to do it. But. Um, uh, there were sets, and then and there were tons of models made. You know, ILM was functioning full throttle for that film, not just on the digital side, but on the model side. The Utapau sinkhole were, was modeled, and big models. And then they had lots of little models. And then they had the whole lava uh, planet was mostly a huge miniature that took up the whole ILM soundstage. And it was... Uh, something to behold. I mean, I, I, cause it was right. We would meet outside every two times a week before going into dailies and the doors were open. So you would see them. It started out as just this blob of material. And then it, every couple of days, it was more looking more and more like a lava planet. And then it was actually flowing lava. I mean, it was incredible. And Lauren Peterson was, you know, part of the team hacking away the styrofoam, you know, the same guy who was doing it in 1975. Were you saying they had flowing lava not on set, or well, that it wasn't real. It was oh, okay. <laughs> like red milkshake stuff, whatever it was. Um, well, I just meant but it was an actual physical lava. substance. Okay, I was. No, no, I still wouldn't have put my foot in it, but still. Yeah. <laughs> it had steam rising from it and everything. I don't know how they did it. I mean, those guys are amazing. Yeah, maybe, but I, I seem to remember steam. Maybe that's my imagination. Yeah, no, no, all the stops were pulled out for making that film. Yeah, because I think that's why the effects hold up in a lot of the, the I, I, I do like the prequels, but it was because he was using, you know, miniatures and computer generated effects together. Yeah, exactly. They were using everything. And John Knoll, who is the visual effects supervisor on all three of them, you know, with others, but he was sort of the through line. Uh, he, I mean, we, he did a whole book called Creating the World of Star Wars. And, and I kind of co-wrote, it was his book, but he was working on pirates and ran out of time. So I kind of wrote it with him. 
he said many times, when you're doing visual effects, you have to use every trick in the book. And if it makes makes sense to build a set, you build a set. And if it makes sense to do a miniature, you do a miniature. But you don't throw away all these tools that people have spent decades perfecting just because you could could do it digitally. Because often it won't look that good digitally. And if it's all digital, then the, the, the audience subconsciously detaches from the movie because then you're just watching an animated movie. Actually, Josh, do you have anything else on Revenge of the Sith? Uh, I don't have anything now. I was going um, to ask if you had more Star Wars questions. Yeah, well, I, I had a question about... Um, it was weird growing up. Like, one second we heard George Lucas was going to do nine films and then... It was six, then he, I think it was before Jedi came out, he went back, he just realized, I'm just going to do six of these. And I was just wondering, has he ever, did he ever talk to you about what his sequel trilogy would have been? Well, when I was doing the research, I actually found, which like literally, and it's in one of the books, I can't remember which books, but it's in one of them. I found an outline that had 12 films marked out, and but not each number had a, a film next to it but there was like and it was early because what was episode four i think was episode three and the clone wars were in there somewhere they might have been episode two or something it was a different order but there were 12 slots and he said many times that in the early early interviews that he planned to do 12 films but he wanted to <laughs> so do many <laughs> yeah he wanted to do one a year like james bond uh, and uh he won't, I don't know if he'll cop up, if he'll say that now, but, and then, and then it was nine. And then, and in the books, you can, he talked to Mark Hamill and, and other people who were, you know, he felt were interested. <laughs> uh, Jim Bloom, the producer at ILM, about his ideas, and they would change. They, they would change all the time. And, uh, and he told me once that he had the really big notebook, it was like his, Superb ideas of Star Wars notebook, like this thing that he'd had since whatever 1973 or even before. And he would sort of bring, he would, when I would work on his stuff, he'd give me notes from that or from other things, but they would be selected and given to me. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so I said, Well, can I see it? <laughs> this was around when I was doing <laughs> Jedi, I think. And I said, Can I see it? And he just said, No. <laughs> 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 Too private, and uh, so you know, I think that's where you'll find out what it, maybe his his ideas more fleshed out were for you know all twelve films. But I but I do believe it was a kaleidoscope, and it was I think I'm pretty safe in saying that it was always changing mm-hmm. his ideas specific films. And you know if if he had done the sequels, if he hadn't sold the Lucas film to Disney, you know I I, I saw those. Um, his plans for the sequels and I can't talk about them because of the NDA, but it doesn't really matter because by the time he actually made the film, those ideas could have been completely changed. You know, yeah. some things remain, but you know, things happen when you're, when you're, that's why that you have your, the title of your, your podcast, the best movies ever made. So many things change mm-hmm. generally speaking on films, unless you're Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then of course there's just thousands of movies that have never been made. But yeah, who knows what they would have been like if they had been made? Yeah, I always I always remembered the rumor because um, in Empire, the famous line about the other, and the other was supposed. Yeah, I don't know if this is true, but the the other was going to be the the lead in the in the sequel trilogy. And so I was always. Oh, you mean the the that. other person with the force? You're talking about? Yeah, that ended up being Leia. Leia. Um, well, the to bring up this book a hundred times because it was like one of my favorite books. Secret History of Star Wars was saying that uh, it, it originally it wasn't Leia. It was supposed to be another Jedi, but he didn't want it to take away from Luke, so he he switched it to Leia. I don't, you know, that's according to that book, but the other was supposed to be set up in Empire to be in the sequel trilogy at one point. But, you know, I don't know how much of that book is true or not. I just, that, that book, I've just been so fascinated by. 
that was. You know, I, I, I haven't read it. Uh, I didn't find anything in my research that was, or any of the script uh, versions or fragments that I read that would that would support that George even knew. I'm sure in his head he had some idea who the other was, and mm -hmm. anything is possible. But uh, I think he just put it in there uh, as a. It was a good story point. You know, mm -hmm. uh, keeps keeps audiences on their toes, and I think yeah. figured, I'll answer I'll answer that when I have to. <laughs> you know. Yeah, we we interviewed. I'm doing a documentary on novelizations, and we interviewed Drew McWeeny. And Drew McWeeny was like telling us that was the one thing he was so obsessed with was going into Return of the Jedi was to find out who this other was. You know, <laughs> he was like, I had a, you know, he was just he was so obsessed with that you well, know it's funny that jj abrams became the shepherd of the newer movies because that's such a jj abrams move to be like i'm gonna dangle this intriguing thing out there i don't know what the answer is i'll figure that out later <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's something that they do a lot it's, it's easy to have a lot of beginnings it's yeah. harder to <laughs> very hard uh, but but again in george's kaleidoscope way of doing things in it in a, i think it was the second draft of star wars princess leia she's not a princess her name is leia and she's a cousin of luke she's out on the farm on tatooine uh so george could arguably say that yes they you know the other was always related to luke and had been from the beginning but he also didn't argue with the fact that when I did the Jedi book, I found a fragment where he wrote Leia exclamation mark. And that was where it crystallized in his mind that once again, the quiet got moved. And so, yeah, Leia is the other Luke's sister. But I, I really don't believe until that point that it was crystallized in his mind. I really don't think you'd have that kiss in M Empire. <laughs> yeah. No way. That, that's what makes Star Wars so great because it's this huge... Which one of the things that makes Star Wars great is is this mega franchise, you know, this huge, 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 huge phenom cinematic phenomenon. But unlike the other ones, it was original material created by a single person, seen through his highly idiosyncratic mind, who was at his heart an independent filmmaker and had been from his days at USC. And that's one of the things I wanted to we were going to talk about. In, I think it's worth mentioning is that some of George's oldest friends told me and they've said in interviews that it's kind of too bad that Star Wars became such a huge hit because it prevented him from making other kinds of interesting movies that would have been much weirder <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but also maybe as interesting, you know, like American Graffiti and THX. Um, they well, were sort of, closer to him in some ways. And that was uh, when Steve was done with his Star Wars questions, that was something I was going to segue to was this topic. Cause I know, you know, growing up, uh, you know, when you're, I feel like when you're younger, you don't really pay attention that much to the names you see in credits of the movies. Um, I knew who George Lucas was because I watched Star Wars so many times, but American Graffiti was like a movie that was always on TV that I would watch snippets of. And at some point, whatever age it was, when I realized those were made by the same people, I found it kind of mind-blowing because they seemed so different. And then as you <laughs> mentioned THX, then you see that one and it's even more different yet. Um, it's so, like those three movies are such a strange combo. Um, but then, yeah. yeah, I mean, much much like Star Wars did for everyone. I know Alec Guinness obviously had his feelings about the fact that there's a whole generation of people who've, never seen bridge on the river Kwai, and he's just always going to be obi-wan but that kind of happened to lucas too he was <laughs> he had that and then yeah. he, of course he had indiana jones um but i was going to ask do you know about any particular projects that lucas had kind of wanted to do and still never has done from that era george is kind of the the opposite of that kind of filmmaker um because i i recently wrote about kubrick Kubrick is famous for these huge projects that he never, you know, with tons and tons of year, years of research done and then not being able to make them for whatever reason or 
not wanting to. George once said to me, I think it was while they were making Red Tails, that he's he was kind of happy because he had with Red Tail with the completion of Red Tails, he will have would have completed all the movies he ever intended to make. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a very Tarantino like statement. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it, was, it was very revealing, and I don't know if he would repeat that, but he definitely said it. And I found it very interesting, you know, because these guys are very driven. And uh, George is, you know, the, the, the two movies that it took him a long time to make were uh, the Radio Land Murders, right? I'm getting the title right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, right. and, uh, which he was doing in the early 70s and uh, Red Tails, which he wanted to make for a long, long time. And he finally did it. Neither one of them did very well. <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He did have uh, get the. I, I have not revisited Lay Radio Land Murder since it was new, but I liked it as a kid. It was a. Uh, I liked that kind of. Yeah. I've always wondered, silly movie. I always wondered what Red Tails would have been like, like during the time period when he wanted to, wanted to make it. Also, you know, because I think. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, you know, there was George. But even by the time he was doing Return of the Jedi. He had so many plates in the air, he no longer was able to focus the way he was able to focus on THX, graffiti, and Star Wars, where they were the only things in his life, more or less, and all-consuming. And he, and he also said that to me once. He said, was when I think we were doing Revenge of the Sith, and for, at one point he couldn't remember something that normally, he said, when I did Star Wars, I knew every frame of the film. Absolutely every frame. You know, twenty-four mm-hmm. feet a second. He knew <laughs> every frame of Star Wars, and that wasn't the case by the time you know twenty years later. And 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 why would it be the case? You know, he doesn't. You can't have that. Most filmmakers just don't have that kind of fire. Uh, that go. You know, as they get older, it's it's rare that you know, particularly these days, they tend to peak early and then and then kind of trail off a little bit there are there are exceptions of course always but um, yeah we, we got scorsese spielberg cronenberg they're still going strong but yeah I mean, no. cronenberg's a rare example of a filmmaker who kind of is trying to go in different directions even with like yeah. someone like spielberg and scorsese it's like they've kind of figured out their thing yeah. And they're just going to keep doing that thing until they're not able to do it. Cronenberg seemed like he got bored being David Cronenberg somewhere in the late nineties and was like, I'm going to become a whole new kind of David Cronenberg. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and George is always saying that he was going to get back to sort of being this guy he was at USC and making these 16 millimeter experimental films. Have you guys seen his uh, student films? You know, when, I, I've, the only one I've seen was uh, when I was in high school, I did a like week long film seminar out here in LA. It was the first time I'd been to LA. Um, and one of the things they did was they took us to USC and they showed us like Robert Zemeckis's senior thesis. Um, I'm forgetting, what's the guy who did Fandango and Waterworld? Kevin uh, Reynolds? Yeah, Kevin Reynolds. His short that turned into Fandango and they showed us the original thx uh with the longer title that i'm forgetting um and it yeah it's it was so experimental again i mean thx the feature is experimental but as a kid who grew up weaned on star wars which is usually presented as like the epitome of tentpole hollywood filmmaking it was interesting to see what his roots were so it's such an abstract strange movie yeah yeah he did did like a Visual poem adapted from E. Cummings and a movie called Frey Height, which meant freedom. And he was into, you know, abstract film montage. He loved those guys. He loved the French New Wave. And he mm-hmm. was, uh, he was really, he really loved Alphaville. It was a, really a huge influence on him, you know, the, the, the art film. And, and, he, and again, he once said to me, THX is the film, the film version was what comes closest to his sort of personality which is kind of very hum- dark humor, uh, but still speed, high speed chases. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Star, 
I always say that Star Wars is part of the trilogy, which is THX, American Graffiti, and Star Wars. There's this Leaving Home trilogy. It's all about leaving mm-hmm. home, yeah. escaping, escaping from Modesto. I was going to say from Modesto. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, uh, are his are those other short films? Do you know if those are available for people to watch? I haven't done like a survey, but I I'm pretty sure most of them are on uh are on YouTube. So yeah. Some, they all escaped to YouTube somehow. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're pretty good, you know, for considering that you know he was in in college when he did them. They're they're pretty amazing. Yeah, I need to check those out. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say is that we've always heard about these experimental films he wanted to make. And then you'd figure after Star Wars, he has more than, the, you know, he's he seems like he's doing all right. <laughs> that maybe <laughs> it, it is the time to, to do something. I've, I've been I've been hearing about that for years, you know, like even in film school, he was going to make these experimental films and just been kind of bummed. You know, he never got a chance to do them. Um, I don't know. There was this great documentary on HBO called The Defiant Ones and about Dr. Dre. And it kind of kind of said that after he made all that money with the Beats microphone, he couldn't make that next album everyone was waiting for because he was so successful. They show you him in his recording studio trying to rhyme and make this album. He's got the biggest recording studio. you know, but the success. So, I mean, I wonder if that's something with George Lucas, maybe it's just like you were saying, like his, his grad, like his fellow filmmaker friends said about him making Star Wars, he wasn't able to make experimental movies. Well, it's kind of like the Oscar curse, right? Yeah. It, it, uh, for some people anyway, it takes away some of the drive. Mm -hmm. Though I would be pretty exciting to imagine George Lucas at, at after all these years and uh, his success and wealth making like a $30,000 experimental film. Uh, I'd really love to see what that would be. The last, not the, like the second to the last time I saw him, which was probably five years ago or something. And he'd been, I'd heard that he was making them. He was making something. I heard from people at the ranch. And uh, so I said, I hear you're making them. And, sort of, eh. and I said, well, can, I, can I see one? And again, he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, maybe uh, maybe it's the kind of thing that he's, he's waiting till he's gone and we're going to discover this oh. vault of all these little movies he was making or something. Hopefully, hopefully it's not like J.D. Salinger, who was apparently always writing uh, but then I don't, I don't know if he burned it all or something before he died. Well, books have the, the, thing about, the thing you have to realize about George too, is that he's kind of like uh, Walt Disney, not the Disney company, but the actual yeah. guy, Walt. Um, and that he's, he's kind of, he, he likes to build, you mm-hmm. know, in the same way Disney's later last part of his career was heavily devoted to Disneyland and Disney World and making these kind of utopias. Uh, I, I came to the conclusion that in some ways, George's movies were financing his building projects. You know, mm-hmm. and, and licensing where publishing was part of licensing, which is where I was. But licensing was, you know, this huge cash cow where we were basically not only financing the other movies that he wanted to make in the Clone Wars, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but as building projects, you know, if, if you haven't, if you guys, if you haven't been to Skywalker Ranch, it's I haven't. Oh God, I, wish. Mean, <laughs> I really hope that it's preserved, you know, for future generations, some kind of film school or, I mean, because it's, it's unbelievable how beautiful and how well planned it is. Underground parking lots and screening rooms and just, you know, sparing no cost, building the most fantastic building I mean, Skywalker sound is just, just incredible it's like at the time and, and maybe to this day the most expensive building west of the Mississippi uh, it is you go in as this beautiful combination of brick and, and wood and these beautiful recording studios and uh, mixing rooms and, and then with a full stage but then it's one guy uh, Howie Hammerman who was literally like Lucasfilm employee number five or something. He's been there since the 
75 or something. Uh, he gave me a tour of what you never see, which is this huge sort of underground like factory that's powering sky sound. I mean, it was, and it's all, you can't see any of it. It's all built into the hillside. And the, the millions of dollars that George <laughs> spent on that thing is mind boggling. And inside Sky Sound is the Stag Theater, which is reportedly the nicest movie theater in the world. Wow. It's built, masterminded by this guy, Tom Holman, who masterminded the THX sound system. And, and THX comes, is also a play on obviously the movie, but Tom Holman, TH crossover. Oh. So it's Tom Holman crossover system. And I'm not technical enough to know what that crossover system is, but it's used in the, in the THX sound system and the Stag Theater. And this theater is the, part of working, part of the big perks was you get to watch movies in this Stag Theater. And it was just, you see these movies and this, the technicians, this guy sound would turn the sound way up and it would be just blah, mind blowing, you know, mind blowing because it's so amazing visually and uh, audio wise was, and so all this stuff is George is spending millions and millions of dollars on, on doing that and then building Big Rock Ranch which is like the annex to Skywalker and the same property but a different entrance and this is I was the first part of the first group of employees to occupy that building and it's this Frank Lloyd Wright just gigantic but beautifully proportioned uh, Basically, business building, but in a Frank Lloyd Wright style, with with Gustav Klimt paintings in the in the atrium, you know, mm. uh, reproductions, the actual Klimt painting. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think we were about. It was made for three hundred employees, and we were never really more than two hundred. And it was something like eight hundred square feet per employee. Wow! It, it, it was huge. And beautiful, and the and the Japanese business people would come, and they would just their eyes would pop out of their heads because they appreciated at some level more than I think others because they're I don't know they, just in terms of space what Lucas had created, and uh, there's a lake, and there's turtles in it, and there's a you know there's a stream, and I mean it was unbelievable. And then he built the Letterman Digital Art Cinema. Uh, cinema, not cinema. There was a cinema down there too, but the complex of buildings in the Presidio. And we were, I was a part of the first employees that went and occupied that group of buildings. And those are, <laughs> those are, they're not as nice, but it's still really, really nice. And again, Big Rock and the, and the ones in the Presidio have the, again, these incredible cinemas and, uh, and, you know, incredible landscaping. And now he's building his museum down where you guys or where yeah. you are, John. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, and that was you know decade a decade at least in the making, if not more. Uh, it's going to be unbelievable, and that's more than the sixteen millimeter films. That's his legacy, and he's fully conscious of that. Mm. Oh. Yeah. I had a question: Did he ever? bring up to you his uh, his version of apocalypse now what it would have been like or did he ever bring it up at all so i've always been curious like what it would have been like if yeah you hear that. that that was a thing coppola or was yeah. it coppola wanted him to do it was that the now well, originally, to originally i think it was his i george and john milius's idea and john milius i can't remember if they they worked together on the script or whether it was mostly milius uh, I did a book called this. I didn't write it. I edited it. Marcus Hearn wrote it called The Cinema of George Lucas. And he kind of does a brief look at it. Uh, oh. I think he read the script. And there's a summary of the George Milius Lucas script in there. And it's, it's very different from the Coppola one. And, and George was, really wanted to make it. He shopped it around all over Hollywood. And you could argue that that's the one film he didn't make, except that Coppola did make it. And what George did is he, uh, at a certain point, he was making Star Wars, graffiti was a hit, and Coppola came to him and said, look, you can make Apocalypse Now. We can get the money, you can make it. And so George had a choice between Apocalypse Now and Star Wars. And uh, he decided 
he had done two films up to that point, THX and Graffiti. And THX depressed everybody. Nobody went to go see it. American <laughs> Graffiti was a huge sleeper hit. And he was getting hundreds of letters from people saying that that movie had changed their lives and they had been suicidal and now they wanted to go on living. And so he wanted to make, he decided, I don't want to make a depressing movie about the Vietnam War. I'd rather make an uplifting fairy tale because that's, I like it better. And then that's the decision he made. And Coppola went off to do Apocalypse Now. And I've heard and rumors that went insane while shooting it. So it's like, <laughs> for yeah. mental health reasons, Lucas also made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I've heard rumors that there was, I did a, Actually, no, I was there. I was there when Marcus Hearn was interviewing George about for that other book. And uh, Marcus asked if there had been, because there's rumors that there had been a falling out during the apocalypse now, whatever, at some point. And George said no, that it just wasn't true, that he's always supported Coppola in the, in the making of it. You know, there might have been some competition. And what George did is he then took, because he wanted to do it, film it 16 millimeter and do this whole sort of, you know, handheld look at sort of black comedy, Dr. Strangelove version. For Apocalypse Now? For Apocalypse Now. That, he, had a, he had very much ideas about how to do it. And he ended up using some of those ideas for the Vietnam sequence in a more American graffiti. Oh, huh. The, 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 toad, the toad sequence, the toad storyline. That's and, interesting. Uh, actually found something about that in the, this book. I, I just helped Howard Kazanjian write his memoirs. He was the producer of More American Graffiti. And so he talks about it a little bit. Oh, and what for the apocalypse, his apocalypse now, do you remember? Was it more, was the story basically the same and it was just going to be tonally different, more Dr. Strangelove, or was it actually a different story altogether? I, I have not read the script. Okay. And I don't remember. I don't remember the the scenario. I, I think it would have been pretty different. I, I, I think it would have been, you know, because it's different, just different personalities mm -hmm. versus Lucas. You know, have you ever heard the story about? I think they asked Coppola and, and Lucas, like midway in their career, before they were wildly successful. What would you do if you had a billion dollars or something? I haven't heard that story. No, I don't remember exactly the response, but Coppola was like. A, I'd spend it all to build some gigantic, you know, something or other, and then I'd need to borrow another billion dollars. <laughs> and, and Lucas was like, I put half of it in the bank. <laughs> and then I very calculatedly figure out what to do, you know, mo how to use the other five million as wisely as possible. <laughs> Ever the businessman. Yeah, because I, I guess it's it's kind of weird when you think about it then that Coppola got to make Apocalypse Now and then he his last few films he made were kind of experimental, right, in a way? Yeah, I saw, they showed one of them at, when I was at the Presidio and I was actually sitting behind Walter Murch and George Lucas during the, during the screening and it was about, it was with uh, Matt Damon goes to Argentina or something. I forgot. I, I, and uh, it, not, I can't remember. It was filmed in black and white, and it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of interesting because they were commenting on the film a little bit as it, as it was projected. And uh, but it was kind of private, so I think I can repeat what they said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen any of them, but I think it's interesting how it – I was just thinking about it right now. It's like he – he makes George's movies and he ends up kind of making experimental films and been interesting. What would have happened if Lucas made Apocalypse well, Now? You know, in, in some ways I think Coppola, Lucas and Spielberg are like brothers and, and, and Scorsese. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know all of them well enough to say, but Spielberg has said it, I think, or George said it, you know, they're like, they love each other and they're also very competitive. Mm hmm. So if one of them says, I'm going to do this, and the other one might say, oh, well, I'm going to do it first. <laughs> you know, going off and making experimental movies before you. Ha-ha! Yeah. <laughs> they also help each other out a lot. Somebody, somebody will write a book about Coppola, Spielberg, and Lucas or something. 
Yeah, I'd be fascinated by it. All I know is from them is when I read uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, but I don't know how much of that is all true. So, <laughs> Yeah, I read that. I don't know. I, I've heard different, differing things. Yeah, I love that book, though, but I'll, I'm not, I won't say anything. We'll, we'll save it. But it's yeah. <laughs> pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I'd love to come back and talk about Indiana Jones or Planet of the Apes or uh, also Alien and Aliens is, is, as I always call it. Oh my God! The, yeah. the Aliens is coming out at the end of this month. Oh wow! Yeah, so got all sorts of things coming out, or just came out. Or <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's I, I'm fortunate, I guess, but at the same time, I just want people to buy all up. Just please buy the book all up and <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> Definitely. And then you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, well, to wrap things up, uh, where can people find you on the social medias? You can find me, J.W. Rinsler, on Twitter. I have a website, jwrinsler.com. And, you know, I'm on Facebook. I, I've been doing more social media than ever before in my life because I'm trying to promote this book. So I'm out and that there. book is all up, which people should check out. Is there an audiobook version of it? The the God, they're, fans recording, out there. they're recording it now. A uh, uh, really good uh, guy named Paul. Uh, I don't want to get his last name. Maybe I can email it to you, but he's he's uh, doing the narration. And uh, they sent me a sample that they're doing. It sounded really good. So, yes, they're doing an audio book. Excellent. Uh, and you can find us on Instagram, Best Movies Never Made. You can find us on Twitter at Never Made Film. Uh, I also encourage you to check out the Electric Now app, which is free. You can watch uh, movies, TV shows, and video versions of our podcast and all our sister podcasts, like Inglorious Trexperts, um, 430 Movie, uh, lots of fun stuff. Um, I would like to thank uh, Bill Ritter, our sound engineer extraordinaire, uh, along with the rest of Electric Surge Network, including our producers, Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. Um, until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.